Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. Now, I'm recording this shortly before Game 4 of the Lakers-Nuggets series. I wanted to tuck this in because there's probably going to be some very important other subjects that are going to come out of whatever transpires in Game 4, whether it's a sweep for the Nuggets, which I'm somewhat anticipating, or the uh, Lakers some find some way, somehow, of extending that series. So keep that in mind. This is without the knowledge of whatever transpires in Game 4, because I'm focusing on this series. And... Nikola Jokic in particular, because there are players that come along now and then who defy all the tropes and tried and true concepts about NBA players. Nikola Jokic is proving to be one of them. Here's one of those preconceived based on history notions that I'm talking about, that non-lottery picked players can only rise so far. Now, sure, there have been Other second-round picks like Jokic who have proved to be champions and Hall of Famers. Manu Ginobili immediately comes to mind. Draymond Green is another one. And even undrafted players have achieved both accomplishments. Ben Wallace immediately comes to mind as a champion and a Hall of Famer. But how many second-round picks or undrafted players have ever become two-time MVPs. That's a whole other category. Now, there was a time not that long ago when I chalked up his awards to the current obsession with using statistics and analytics to determine a player's greatness. I wasn't sure just how great he was, whether he was championship material. I wasn't Sure, he was anything more than a uniquely skilled big man playing on a team and in a system 
that ran everything through him, gave him a lot of freedom, basically created its system off of him, and thereby resulted in him consistently having these extraordinary box scores. Not that long ago, Chris Webber was very similar. I covered him both with the Warriors in that brief time and with the Washington Wizards, and then obviously saw a lot of him with the Sacramento Kings. And I was always struck, even early on, where be watching the game and you'd look at halftime or afterward, and his box score would just be, he's like, wow, look at the numbers this guy's put up. It seemed that they just effortlessly piled up in every category. The measure for greatness for me requires more than that, though. I'm not sure how many people <laughs> agree with me on average among fans or media members, but it requires, for me, greatness requires that the numbers that they're collecting mean something. And if, I'm, if a guy's putting together a quiet triple-double, it's still as much a quiet triple-double as it is a triple-double. Meaning, if I say quiet, that I didn't really notice him impacting the game. True greatness requires imposing the skills that produce all of those numbers on the opposition and in a way that results in runs at championships. It means making the plays at the end of a game that decide the outcome. And I see Jokic doing that more than I ever have. Now, I pride myself on seeing players acquire that ability before anyone realizes it. That they, they show the signs during the regular season that makes me confident they're going to be able to do it in the playoffs. I saw it in Giannis Antetokounmpo during the regular season, the year he then led the Bucks to the Bucks to the 2021 championship. It's why I voted for him as regular season MVP because I was confident that he was going to confirm that by the way he played in the postseason, and in, indeed he did, winning a title. He closed the deal, which was gratifying to me, no doubt, but it wasn't surprising. Now I didn't pick up on Jokic in the same way. I wasn't anticipating the Jokic that I'm seeing in the playoffs now based on what I saw in the regular season. And maybe I didn't pay close enough attention during the regular season. I watch a lot of games. Sometimes I'm watching more than one game at the same time. In a lot of ways, Jokic looked exactly the same. And perhaps it was also that I was comparing him to Joel Embiid who was much more forceful in imposing himself on games during the regular season. I attributed the Nuggets' overall success to changes that I saw in Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. It wasn't as if Jokic had really elevated his game as far as I could tell, but that he had complementary players who had. Gordon has embraced being a bigger defensive presence and Porter has shown a physical toughness I hadn't seen before. He's mixing it up around the boards for tough rebounds. He's using his quick hops and length. He's attacking the rim more. I really thought that, that Porter Jr. had a pretty boy game before. Lived off of his jump shot. Knew he had a nice jump shot. Always went to it. Was never afraid to take a shot at any time. Didn't always have the best of shot selections as a result. 
didn't always recognize when pulling up for a three wasn't the shot to be taken based on time and score. And Gordon, slowly but surely, has just transformed from the guy that was a disappointment in last year's playoffs who sort of punked by the Warriors, in essence, has come around. He looks like he has dedicated himself to being a defensive stopper, which is not what I thought of him when he was in Orlando, winning dunk contests. Generally, guys who win dunk contests think of themselves as high flyers and offensive forces, not as stoppers. Gordon clearly has embraced that, and i got to give Mike Malone, his coach, at least some of the credit because I believe that he has cultivated that in him in the same way that Steve Kerr cultivated it in, in Andrew Wiggins, saying, you can be a star on a losing team. You've already experienced that. Do you want to be part of a championship team? And if so, this is what, this is what we need from you on this particular team. Uh, Jokic has actually, while he has shown that through the better part of these playoffs, stepping up, being aggressive, has reverted a bit in, in my eyes in the last two games. Starting with the Nuggets gutsy comeback win to take game two against the Lakers. I thought there were times he could have attacked Rui Hachimura or LeBron James, who shared the primary duties guarding the Joker with Anthony Davis. That was a wrinkle that the Nuggets, that his, his aggression in game one forced. Game two, it seemed he was all too content to set screens and spring Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray for threes. Now, it worked, resulted in a win, but there were just times I thought he could have attacked the paint and in doing so, might have created even easier looks for his shooters. Nuggets made a lot of tough shots in that Game 2 win. And then there were other times where Jokic got into the paint, and he was just too eager to make a pass to someone inside, in tight space, that resulted in turnovers. Even if the ball had reached his intended target in some of those situations, it didn't look as if they had a clean look at the rim. It just looked like he was more interested in having somebody else shoot than himself. Now, I've heard mea culpas from some of my colleagues about this new Jokic, suggesting that they hadn't been paying attention either. And, and maybe that's true, but I, I don't think that's it. The aggression, the willingness to attack the rim and look for his shot, is something he hasn't done before with the force that I've seen him do it, again, for the better part of these playoffs. I still have in my mind's eye, game one, him catching the ball about 18 feet, 18 feet away from the basket on the right wing, Anthony Davis on his hip, and Jokic spinning and taking one dribble and dunking it with AD swooping in over his shoulder, looking to block it, thinking that he would do the usual Jokic layup. Now, had Jokic laid it up, as he so often has done in the past, AD might have got a piece of it. But Jokic dunked it, and it made the difference in more ways than one. To have your best player dunk on their best player sends a message to the rest of your team. We've got this. Now, I didn't see that in Game 3 much at all. 
that time of aggression, at least not until the fourth quarter when he had Rui on him in single coverage. And it, look, better late than never, but if we're going to put Jokic in the best player in the league category, I want to see that he agrees with that 100%, 24-7. I've bagged on LeBron at times for the same passivity, so I'm not about to make an exception for Jokic. When you are physically imposing, when you have a huge physical advantage, and you are skilled, I expect you to impose your will. I expect you to utilize that physical advantage and mentally put your opponent in a difficult position as many times as you can. I'm not looking for anybody else. If you are a superstar, if you are one of the all-time greats, which we've already started talking about Jokic in that manner, then there's no, well, I was just making the basketball play. The best basketball play, if you are an all-time great, is you imposing your will on the opponent. Now, granted, with Jokic, unlike LeBron, he didn't ask to be anointed the best player in the league. He's never referred to himself as the best player in the league. But I just can't underscore enough, regardless of whether he wants to think of himself that way or not, if he wants to win, then he's going to do whatever it takes to win. And I can't underscore enough the effect of Denver's best player doing that to AD, the Lakers' best player, and their defensive backbone. It forced Lakers coach Darvin Ham to make an adjustment, which was in game two to use Rui and LeBron to guard Jokic, not at the same time, but trading off, in order to have Davis free to help as a second defender and discourage the other Nuggets from cutting to the rim for layups off feeds from Jokic. And that is what I mean by a great player imposing his will on the game, because in doing so, Now the opponent has to make adjustments. And when they have to make adjustments, as the Lakers have made adjustments, it presents other problems. There's a reason that a team starts the the group that it does and has the rotation that it does because it knows over the course of the season that these combinations work a certain way or are the most effective combinations. Maybe a little bit different for the Lakers because they were composed so late. But for the most part, Darvin Ham did a lot of experimenting with with his roster. He used a lot of different combinations. So he went into the series thinking he could play one way. And Jokic has made him say, no, now you have to try some other, other ways in which are less effective, less proven for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Some of the things that they lose with Davis not guarding Jokic is that 
It makes Davis less available for runouts, for long passes off missed shots, for easy transition buckets. Anybody who's watched the Lakers for the last couple years knows that's one of their favorite things to do. AD's pretty damn fast for a big man. And considering where Jokic would normally be operating around the elbow, the opportunity to leak out, and I mean, once he gets down there, who's, if it's not Jokic, which it's not going to be, he's not winning a foot race with Davis, then who is tall enough or big enough that is going to be able to stop a lob to Davis at the opposite rim? And uh, I wouldn't even expect any of the other Nuggets to be looking to break back on a situation like that. So take that away as a result of Davis not guarding Jokic, but being the help defender, which means he's probably on the baseline more often than not. He's not going to be high. Otherwise, there's no point. Not going to be able to block anything that Jokic may get going to the rim. Uh, The other element uh, as a result of the switch It means that Austin Reeves now probably has to defend either Michael Porter Jr. or Aaron Gordon, who both of whom have been very good about bullying Reeves and driving hard to the rim. It also leaves the Lakers playing a bigger lineup, which means slower rotations and more timid timid closeouts to shooters on the weak side. And if you're wondering why the Nuggets have had so many open threes, that's why at least in part. Also, D'Angelo Russell (laughs) is not very good at closing out in particular or defense in general. But none of that happens if Jokic doesn't show in game one that he's willing and able to score on AD in a multitude of ways. The trend continued in game three, the trend of him playing more passive than I would have liked. What has made Jokic special in these playoffs is that if he's not scoring, he's dominating the boards and playing with enough force that he's creating easy buckets beyond open threes for everybody else. And so I don't necessarily need Jokic to score to be the imposing factor that he's capable of being dominates the boards, is aggressive attacking and then kicking. All of that is fine. I don't need big numbers from him scoring-wise, but I need something. And in the first half of Game 3, he had two rebounds in 22 minutes and four assists. Now, numbers aren't everything, but I'm convinced he was missing the floaters and mid-range jumpers he normally makes because he was being tentative. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he took a single free throw either. All of his shots, for the most part, the ones that he missed, were front rim. Now, all that said, as far as what Jokic did and didn't do, it's also time to recognize that Jamal Jamal Murray is a fearless bucket getter. Draymond Green suggested that the Nuggets should put Jared Vanderbilt on Murray after he went off in game one. Vanderbilt being a long athletic defender who the Lakers used on Steph Curry. And against the Warriors, it was effective at times, mostly because Vanderbilt did a good job of making it hard to get the ball back to Steph with a clean look once he had given it up. But Draymond was essentially saying 
that Vanderbilt could do that and more to Murray. He could shut off his water. And here's the difference, and this may, this may be sacrilege, what I'm about to say, sacrilege to Warriors fans. But the difference has been that Jokic can set much tougher screens than Draymond can. And if Vanderbilt gets switched on onto him, or anybody else, quite honestly, Jokic is a threat to score in a way that Draymond obviously is not. Murray also has handled the pressure by both Vanderbilt and Dennis Schroeder as well or better than Steph did. That's the sacrilegious part. Now, some of that is because of all the work that Steph had to do to get free. He looked worn down by game six to me. He was he appeared maybe even game five. It appeared as if he was pacing himself and picking his spots to be aggressive. And maybe that will happen to Murray in game four, but it has not happened yet. Now, it helps. Murray is about nine years younger. And as conditioned as Steph is. And Steph is 35. And 35 is 35. Now, having to defend Jokic, I believe, is another reason why LeBron looked so spent by the end of Game 2. I can't remember the last time that LeBron had to defend one-on-one a bigger, stronger opponent. Anybody who's done that knows it takes away your legs in a way that sprinting does not. LeBron is usually the one inflicting that punishment. Now, I'll be interested to see if Darvin Ham stays with that matchup in Game 4. I don't know where else he turns, to be honest. Jokic has demonstrated if you go one-on-one, he can handle Rui. He can handle AD. They, they can continue to rotate fresh bodies on him. But if he's aggressive, it doesn't really matter. I also thought that the Nuggets did a better job of not allowing LeBron to get Murray switched onto him so that he could back him down and force either a foul on Murray or help uh, force help to come. Uh, a double team, essentially. And I got to think that that probably helped Murray have the great first half that he had in Game 3 and was instrumental in him finding his way to Game 2 and being heroic in the fourth quarter with 23 points. It's one of the wrinkles in today's game that we don't that we probably don't take into consideration enough when we talk about LeBron continuing to score at a fairly high clip because everybody does it other than maybe the Celtics and that's hunting for mismatches. But I, I we have to be honest here. LeBron is doing his damage being defended by guards at least half the time. Steph, Clay, Jamal. When he had Gordon on him, he has rarely looked to even try an attack. And it's a smart strategy, but it is taking advantage of how small lineups are in today's game. Take that away, and LeBron is left to do what he did for the better part of the second half of game two, which is launch threes. Denver will happily live with that, especially when LeBron is going 0 for 6 from long range, as he did in Game 2. Coach Malone and the Nuggets were mocked for taking exception to all the talk about the Nuggets being in trouble after Game 1. It suggested 
that their Western Conference leading record, the talk that is, was a mirage. That they were this year's Utah Jazz, which they clearly are not. They are younger and more athletic with far more potent weapons. I don't remember the Utah Jazz having a two-time league MVP. Now, I would guess most fans and pundits would take Donovan Mitchell over Jamal Murray in a heartbeat, but I'm not one of them. Then you throw in Porter and Bruce Brown and Contavious Caldwell-Pope's ability to knock down threes and attack the rim and defend, especially in transition. And we're talking about a far more dangerous and versatile challenge than the Jazz ever presented with Joe Ingles and Bogdanovich and Mike Conley. Only Jordan Clarkson could rival any of the three Nuggets that I mentioned as an offensive threat. So I don't blame the Nuggets for feeling disrespected and talking their talk. I believe it's actually fueled them in a big way. I usually don't watch with the sound up, but I watched game three with my family, and so I had it on. And I was astonished at the energy put forth whenever the Lakers showed life by the broadcasters. The compliments for what the Nuggets were doing sounded almost resigned, as if they had no choice but to point them out. I was also alarmed to see Draymond Green touting LeBron afterward, suggesting that if anyone could come back from 3-0, it was the king. I was already a little surprised that he had offered the free strategic advice of playing Vanderbilt on Murray, but this was a whole different level. I don't know that I've ever heard him pump up an opponent to this extent, suggesting that if anybody can come back from 3-0, it was the king. As I see it, he's talking about someone he's still going to compete against at some point. And unless he's planning to enter free agency and join the Lakers next season, it just seemed rather inappropriate. Besides, nothing LeBron has done in this series merits talking about him in that way. A case could be made that LeBron smoked games one and two with his play in the final minutes. The three he took at the end of game one is the luxury of someone who has done as much as LeBron has done. But the fact is, he hasn't shot the three well in this series. He was 0 for 13 before hitting a pair of threes in game three. And, most important, that game one three that he took, down three, he missed. And there was plenty of time where they didn't have to go for the three, in case you weren't paying attention to that game. In game two, he muffed a reverse layup that could have kept him in it and looked overall completely gassed down the stretch. So, in light of that, I was not in love with LeBron saying after game three that the Nuggets' edge in the series is that their supporting cast has hit timely shots. It's true that they have, but the inference is that the Lakers' supporting cast has been outplayed, and that's the reason that the Lakers are down 3-0. Again, I'm not arguing with the accuracy of the Lakers supporting cast having been outplayed. I believe that they have. But there's another element here that has been an equal contributor in my mind. And that is that the Lakers two stars have been out, and that AD and LeBron, 
have been outplayed by the Nuggets' two stars, Jokic and Murray. I could make a case even that Austin Reeves, the Lakers' Austin Reeves, has been the best number three in the series, at least offensively. And that Rui's 23 points in game two, which was not expected, should have been enough to put the Lakers over the top if everything else had been equal. I would have been far more impressed if LeBron had said at any point through the first three games, I have to be better. Unless he's reached the conclusion that he can't be. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as I said, we have Game 4 coming up. Lakers Nuggets. I'm sure there will be elements coming out of that game that will be worth discussing. And I hope to give you a, another episode, certainly before the end of the week if not in the next couple of days. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.